So we're going to dive into our um, our Elephant in the Room series. I'm, I'm a little uh, um, brain dead this morning. Um, got stuck in traffic last night. Didn't get home till about two o'clock. And so um, anyway, so here we go. <laughs> Just so happens we're talking about science today. So anyway, um, so we're starting our, or not starting, we're in the middle of our uh, Elephant in the Room series where we've been looking at this, these, these uh, kind of big, uh, tough topic type of ideas that um, I think are can be kind of problem issues for the church, depending on how we handle them or speak of them or, or ignore them or whatever. And, and so I think a lot of these things that we're talking about are things that either people in the church have questions about and maybe are a little too shy to actually bring them up and ask because they don't want to rock the boat. Or maybe it's people outside the church that are like, you know, those wacky Christians believe these wacky things. And, and, uh, and so, so how do we deal with the elephant in the room that I think a lot of times the church has been ignoring? And so we've talked about a lot of different things. This week we're going to talk about the evolving elephant, the evolving elephant. So uh, it's not going to be so much a, a big talk on evolution as much as it is the church's relationship with science. I don't know if you noticed, but the church has kind of a sketchy relationship with science. Um, in fact, um, the church, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, you know, decided to basically just kill anybody who, uh, said things scientifically that they believed that the Bible didn't back up. And so, you know, whenever somebody came out and said, uh, actually the, you know, the whole universe doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth is actually revolving around the sun and all this kind of stuff. And well, that's heresy and you got to be burned. And, and so, and, and all this kind of stuff that would happen like that. And, um, you know, when people started saying that the earth wasn't flat, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, the church would get upset and well, the Bible says, you know, makes a reference to, you know, God grabbing the corners of the earth and shaking it or whatever. And so uh, it's got to, you know, if it's, it's got corners, it's got to be flat. And so, so all this kind of weird relationship with science. And so from very early on, you know, as the scientific community really began to gain momentum and, and discover more and more and more about this world that we live in, they found themselves um, pitted against the church and the authority of the church from again from hundreds of years ago and that kind of weird relationship between the church and the scientific community has carried on for for all this time and we still hear talk of it today um um a lot actually a lot of talk of it today uh, especially when you get around the issue of evolution and the origins of the universe and things like that um you know how the 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 way that the scientific community leans on um, what they believe to see as either strong theories or just out and out facts um, for a lot of the church, the church has a huge problem with their conclusions. And, and so is the church, so these are the couple, couple questions that we want to answer today. Um, first of all, is the, uh, is science the enemy of faith? Is science the enemy of faith? Um, and then the second question there is, uh, you know, should we believe in a literal six-day creation or evolution or maybe some sort of mix of the two, an evolutionary creation? Um, and, and what does that look like for us? What does that mean for our faith and, and that? This is what I know. that it's a, I, can t- I can promise you this today. Many of you, you will leave here excited and refreshed by what is said. And many of you will leave here calling me a heretic. 
and, and, and downright mad at me. I, I'm just telling you it's just going to happen. Just get ready for it. Um, and so because this is such a hotly debated topic within the church, and it tends to be one of those things that people grasp as very black and white. In fact, I'm going to judge you on how much you love Jesus by how you come down on this issue. Like if, if I, you know, if I come down on this side of the issue, then I obviously love Jesus more than you because you're over on this side of the issue, that sort of thing. And so it's become this thing. And, and can I just say, even though that in our society and kind of throughout the history of the church, this has become such a hot button issue, this is not a core faith issue. And I want you to get that in your head right now before we go any further. This issue is not a core faith issue. And when I'm talking about a core faith issue, I'm talking about, do you believe there is a God? Do you believe that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world? Do you believe that that same son, Jesus Christ, uh, uh, died on a cross and rose again bodily and spiritually three days later? Do you believe? I mean, these are the core issues of our faith, the issues that pertain to our life and our salvation. And the timeline of the beginning of our universe is not a core faith issue. So if I could challenge you all this morning to back off of that hill. Let's not die on that hill. There are, there are hills worth dying on, and that's not one of them. That's not one of them. Let's back off of that a little bit and go, okay, I may feel passionately about this. And I may feel passionate. There are some of you who have decided upon the track of education for your kids based solely on this issue. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Raise your kids however you want to raise them. I'm saying that it's an indicator of maybe how passionately you feel about that issue. And I want to challenge you to let's not let this be a hill that we choose to die on. There are hills worth dying on, and this isn't one of them, okay? Let's, let's start there. Let's kind of level the ground right there. All right? So what I want, I'm going to get into... Uh, we're going to read some of, of uh, uh, early Genesis, Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to look at... Now, what has happened, you've heard me say this before, is that we have... Uh, Christians have the habit of whatever issue they're passionate about, they turn the Bible into a commentary on that issue. And so, for instance, if you are... Um, I'll, I'll give a really good example. Um, some of you have been through the counseling training that we do, and I was talking to my wife about this. And the counseling training, by the way, is, is great. It's epic. It's, it's, it's really good, good training. And if you're considering becoming a counselor or just becoming more knowledgeable in that, you should definitely go through that training. It's really good stuff. However, there are some within that biblical counseling community that they have converted the Bible from the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a counseling manual. And this was never meant to be a counseling manual. Now, is it applicable for things that might come up counseling-wise in our life? Absolutely, it's applicable. But it was not written. When you start reading it as something it was never written to be, you find yourself in a really dangerous position. In the same way, some, there are people in the financial uh, community, uh, stewardship community, uh, your Larry Briquettes and your Dave Ramseys and people like that, that sometimes teeter on making this a book about so almost solely about financial wisdom. And that is dangerous. Does this book have financial wisdom in it? Absolutely it does. But it is not a financial handbook. And so when you make it into, then you begin to start reading, you begin looking. You're like, you're like proof texting. You're looking through, you're trying to find verses that back up the ideas that you're trying to talk. 
and when you when you approach the Bible in that way, where you're trying to find verses to back up the things that you think or that you believe, you are in danger of misreading the text. And I had a professor in college that says says the text can never meant what it was never meant to be. The, the te- I'm sorry, the text can never mean what it was never meant to be. It can never mean what it was never meant to be. In other words, we can't take some sort of brand new reading into a text just because it, it fits our passions and our interests and things like that and read that into that when it was never, that was never the intent of it. We have to stay true to the intent. And the same is true of, this, of the kind of Christian scientific community um, and that they have there's a many of them who have taken the word of God and turned it into a science manual. And it is not a science manual. Can I just tell you that science was not in the mind of anybody who wrote this book? Now, does that mean it's inaccurate? No, that's not what I'm saying. I believe in the infallible word of God. But when you approach this book as what can I learn about science from this book you begin to take verses and pull them out of their context and make them mean something that they were never meant to mean. And that's really dangerous ground for us to be on. To be on. And so when we read the Bible, and actually this whole Elephant in the Room series is really kind of turning into a how to read the Bible type of series. It's, it's how do we approach the text? What's the best and most healthy way to approach the text of God's Word? And we approach it uh, just for, for the text and the text itself, and we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us through that text. But that text was not created in a vacuum. It was created in a context, in a historical context, in a cultural context. It was written to people. Um, It wasn't, can I tell you this? The Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. It was written for you, but it was not written to you. And what I mean by that is the authors of this book, they had an intended audience that they wanted to give these words to. And it wasn't us. It was people who lived thousands of years ago, and they lived in a certain context, and they would get certain references that those writers made that we just won't get because we're totally outside of that context. It was written for us and for our benefit and for us to lean on and know about God and to to have a plan to follow for our lives. It was written for us, but it wasn't necessarily written to us. And if you want to really get into the word, you have to figure out who was it written to? How were they thinking? What were the issues that they were dealing with that the the text might be addressing that we're completely out of touch with now? And how do we rediscover that? And this is where people who really dig into the original languages and Bible scholars really can be helpful in the reading of this book. And so I just would encourage you to, to dig in deep, dig in deep and follow people who dig in deep. You know, through, there's, there's no absence of knowledge in the world today. And, and uh, you have access to uh, uh, speakers and podcasts and things like that, that in previous generations you only had access to if you enrolled in a certain university or whatever. Now we have access to everybody. And it's a beautiful, beautiful time to be alive, right? So now when we take the Genesis account and turn it into strictly uh, a timeline for the beginnings of the unit, for the origins of the universe. I believe that's a misreading of that text because I don't think the guys who wrote that had any intention of that for it to be a very 
strict timeline for the way things were written. Does it get talk about days and nights and things like that? Absolutely it does. But I don't think that was their intent. I think that they had something much bigger in mind. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to play a video for you real fast, and I'm going to come back and talk some more. This is a little bit longer video than I would normally play. It's about 10 minutes long. And, uh, and this, in this video, this video is going to feature um, um, several of uh, kind of the greatest theological minds of our generation today. And these are, these are all people who, um, who, one, have a high view of God, a high theology, and they have a high view of Scripture. These are not liberal theologians. When I'm talking about liberal theologians, there are actually people out there who call themselves theologians that don't believe in Jesus Christ, that don't believe in the resurrection, that don't believe, that barely believe in God. They, they approach theology more as mythology than anything else. And these, this is not these guys. These are, these are the brightest minds on our side of the argument, and this is how they are approaching uh, Genesis 1. Now, it might ruffle some of your feathers, so brace yourself, and, and, and let's, we're going to try to have an open conversation about this this morning. And when I say conversation, I mean, I'm going with the mic, and I'm going to do all the time. I'm talking. Okay, so um, watch this video, and then I'll come back. The Christian Church has always wrestled with the interpretation of Scripture, realizing both how important it is and also sometimes how difficult it is to get it right. And certainly the opening chapters of Genesis have been a topic of much debate throughout Christian history. The Bible is very important to me, but it's very important to recognize the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. It has all sorts of different kinds of writing in it. It has history, it has stories, it has poetry, it has prose. When we read Genesis 1, we have to figure out, what am I reading? Am I reading a divinely dictated textbook to save me the trouble of doing science? Or am I reading something, in fact, more interesting and profound than that? We have to approach Genesis 1 for what it is. It's an ancient document. It's not a document that was written to us. Uh, we believe the Bible is written for us like it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's Word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. It's not about the authority of Scripture. It's about the interpretation of Scripture. What method of interpretation do I use in the case of each individual passage? Biblical scholars urge people to take a literal, plain reading of the text. But I think in the controversy between theology and science, literal is often used to mean scientific, as if it's scientific, and that's a whole different story. We're inclined by our culture uh, to think of the creation narrative as an account of material origins, because we think about the world in material terms. For us, that's kind of what's important about origins. People come to scripture thinking that they need to integrate it with science, and so they want to either read science out of the Bible or they want to read science into the Bible. That's not the way to do it because inevitably you end up making the text say things that it never meant to the ancient audience. We are importing meaning into the text. We are bringing our own presuppositions and assumptions into a text and reading it in light of that as if it were in the text. Now there's a sense in which we all inevitably do that. But there is also a sense in which we need to be aware when the times when we do that are damaging to the reading of the text. 
When I was a kid and the film industry was still relatively new, it was possible to depict people from two centuries ago as modern Americans dressed up in togas. As the film industry has gotten more sophisticated, they've gotten better and better at creating human figures that actually look and behave and think as they probably would have in the past. So we Bible readers ought to be equally sophisticated and recognize that someone who was writing 3,000 years ago, which is very hard to imagine, these people must have been very different from us with very different concerns. They certainly had very, very different understandings about how material things worked. One of the benefits of understanding the historical circumstances of the Bible is we're reminded of how incredibly old this literature is. Let's understand it in view of what we could even remotely expect of the biblical writers to say. We can understand what our own creation stories are saying better if we know what the creation myths were that were known at the times that those stories were written. For instance, to realize that a lot of the Genesis stories were written as a countermeasure against the other cultures' creation stories. That throws an immense amount of light on what parts of the story we're supposed to be paying attention to. The Gilgamesh epic, for example, has a flood narrative and so forth, and so it wants to reflect creatively and theologically in light of those creation myths. So it's going to be something recognizable. Genesis 1 shares theological vocabulary with the other stories. It just sort of takes things and turns it on its head. If one creation myth talks about the earth being created as a result of the battle between gods, we know to look in our creation stories to say, wait a minute, is, is violence intrinsic to the very creation of our universe? And we find it very clearly written that no, it's not. It's Israel's declaration that Yahweh is worthy of worship. It's a potent and counterintuitive theological statement in the ancient world where people say, that's totally different from anything we've ever seen. Historians in the ancient world weren't so concerned with minute, literal accuracy as we are today. People wrote, not to give you a sort of factual, journalistic account of what's going on, but to tell you the significance of what was happening. And so what we see is that there are these really interesting structures in the Genesis text which suggest that it's not describing the creation process as this is the order in which it happened. Rather, it's taking that story and emphasizing theological points. It talks about days. There's morning, there is evening. But the sun and the moon are not created until the fourth day. So why, for example, did the writer of Genesis put the sun and the moon on the fourth day? It's a very strange thing to do. And it's not as if it's only moderns who realize, oh dear, something is wrong. People at any time of history would have realized that was an, an unusual way of writing down a journalistic account. And of course, the reason, most likely, is that people of that day worshipped the sun and the moon. And the Israelites were always being drawn away that way, and their people around them were doing that. And so what the writer was saying is, no, I'm going to demote these things to the fourth day. They're not the first thing to be created. They're something that's created somewhat later. This is simply the sort of language that people use to refer to concrete events, but to invest those events with their theological significance. We're well aware that people have to translate the language for us. We forget that people have to translate the culture for us. And therefore, if we want to get the best benefit from the communication, we need to try to enter their world. Here it does, the audience would have heard it.
as the author would have meant it, and to, to read it in those terms. There is a distinction which is there in scripture between heaven and earth, but the thing about heaven and earth is that they're supposed to overlap and have an interesting interlocking interplay with one another. They are never supposed to be far apart. In the ancient world they didn't have a line between supernatural and natural. God was in everything. You couldn't talk about God intervening, because you can't intervene in something that you're doing. And to them God was doing it all. That kind of functional aspect, that was very important to them. In Genesis, God makes heavens and earth, and it appears that humans are in the world, but God is around as well, because the heavens and earth have not split apart. The temple and the cosmos were kind of all blended into one. Uh, if we used a modern metaphor, it would almost be like the temple was the Oval Office. It's kind of where all the business is done, where the work is, is run. It's the hub of, of activity and of, of control. And when deity took up his rest in the temple, it wasn't for leisure or relaxation. It was to settle down to the work now that everything's set up and ready to go. Telling a story about somebody who constructs something in six days, it's a temple story. It's about um, God making a place for himself to dwell. And this is heaven and earth. And what you do with that is the last thing is you put an image of the God into this temple. And suddenly, Genesis 1, instead of it being were there six days or were there five or were there seven or were there 24 hours, it's actually about when the good creator God made the world, he made heaven and earth as the space in which he himself was going to dwell and putting humans into that construct as a way of both reflecting his own love into the world and drawing out the praise and glory from the world back to himself. And that's the literal meaning of Genesis. To flatten that out into, this is simply telling us that the world was made in six days, is, is almost perversely to avoid the real thrust of the narrative. If this is an inspired book, okay, if this really is you know, something where God is revealing and can speak through it, it shouldn't surprise us that we find multiple layers of depth. Genesis is one of those books, like a Shakespeare play or like a Beethoven symphony or something, where you can describe what it sort of literally says. Here's a Beethoven symphony, here are the notes, da, 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 da. And you think, well, um, that doesn't actually catch what's going on in this. And you want to use bigger language about the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. This is an amazing statement about the, 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 the power of empire and the fate of man and goodness knows what. And you still got to play the notes.
This world was made to be God's abode, God's home, God's dwelling. He shared it with us, and he now wants to rescue it and redeem it. So that we have to read Genesis for all it's worth, and to say either history or myth is a way of saying, I'm not going to study this text for all it's worth. I'm just going to flatten it out so that it conforms to the cultural questions that my culture today is telling me to ask. And I think that's a form of actually being unfaithful to the text itself. The account in Genesis 1 is not intended to be an account of material origins. If that's so, the Bible has no narrative of material origins. And if that's so, then we don't have to defend the Bible's narrative of material origins against a, a scientific narrative, because the Bible doesn't offer one. We can let the text be what it is, and take it for what it is. That's the most literal reading that you could have. All right, so um, I'm, I'm not going to answer a lot of questions today. What I'm going to do is hopefully whet your appetite to, for, you, for you to dig in a little bit deeper and, and kind of come to some conclusions of your own. This is what I know, that um, when we take a very faithful view of this text, um, I believe that there are greater and more significant spiritual truths that apply to our lives today than there are scientific truths. Again, I don't think these guys were writing things uh, with science in mind at all, but they had God and man in mind completely. And so let me just say this. If uh, is did uh, some of you are going to ask me this. You want to pin me down. You want to be Larry King me right now. And and you want to say Jeff did God create um uh, the world in six literal days. And, and I will say this, I believe God is absolutely big enough and strong enough and capable enough to have created this world in six literal days. Did he do that? I don't know. You'll have to ask him. You'll have to ask him. Uh, some of you are on the other side going, well, you know, what about you know, what about all the evidence for evolution? And Jeff did, did God use evolution in creation? And I would answer exactly the same way that I think God is big enough and strong enough and creative enough to have used that in his creative process as well. Did he do it that way? I don't know. You'll have to ask him. You'll have to ask him. But can I just ask you this question? I think for some of us, some of us who maybe who have grown up in church and, and, and kind of fall very conservatively along these lines, um, and we have kind of made this such a, um, um, a defining issue, a defining issue, um, to whether or not we kind of side on this, the, the, the side of the six literal days of creation. Um, can I just ask you all this question? Is God any less magnificent if he created the world in six days or he created the world over millions of years, does that make him any less magnificent? For me, I got to say no. I think both stories are pretty hard for my mind to believe, actually. <laughs> right? I mean, if I'm going to be honest with you about my human mind and what I can comprehend, the fact that God could do all this in six days is no less or more fantastic than God doing this over the course of 
millions of years. So, so I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think God is capable of either. And I don't, again, we have to be careful not to read our questions, our modern day questions, our modern day debates into this historic, but yet very still contemporarily significant text that I don't think they were dealing with, did God create this in six days or, or, or ages or whatever that that was not in their mind when they wrote this. I don't believe that. And so, uh, there's a a lot of good, let me, let me just, before I dive into what I'm going to dive into now, let me refer you, write these things down, okay? Let me refer you to two different uh, groups, or, or you can find their websites. One is the Creation Research Institute. These are literal six-day uh, creation folks, and, uh, and they are fantastic scientists. And, um, and if, you're, if you're looking for more conversation about uh, the evidence for a literal six-day creation, and there is some... Um, the, the evidence out there that that supports this idea. These are these are not just literal six day creation folks. These are very young Earth folks. They're, they're they're the folks that will say the Earth is probably around you know six to ten thousand years old. Very young Earth, right? And uh, so, Creation Research Institute, good conservative, godly people have high view of God, high view of Scripture. And, and, and research that. Let me, so, let me, some of you, many of you may have heard of that group. Let me introduce you to maybe to a group that you haven't heard of called BioLogos. Bio, B-I-O, Logos, L-O-G-O-S. BioLogos. These are high view of God, high view of Scripture, but evolutionary creation folks. Evolutionary creation folks. And so these are people who, who will look at all the evidence and, and, uh, and say um, there's no reason for us to abandon the evidence because uh, that process doesn't say anything less about God necessarily. And so anyway, um, BioLogos Creation Research Institute, you guys can look at those on your own, okay? Now, what I think is a really good idea for us to do, I think we have gotten into the habit of, 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 of a two-testament type of thinking. Two Testament thinking. In other words, we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and that's how God testifies to us about himself. And, and I want to suggest to you a Third Testament that's at least as powerful, if not more powerful. And I would say that there's a Third Testament that is the God's created world. God's created world. There is so much that we can learn about God and his nature and his goodness and his love for us and everything else. There's so much that we can learn about God just by looking at this world that we we created. And I want to challenge you that as you begin to think about scientists, rather than thinking about church versus science, what if you began to see the scientific community as a group of people, even though many of them don't intend it, this is what the result is, what would you begin to look at them as a group of people who actually help us know God better? What if, what if the research and the work that they're doing and, and the, the way this world works and the way the human body works and the way, you know, the, the, all the fossil records and everything else, that, all the work that the scientific community is doing, what if you begin to look at that going and go, wow, they just made me have a greater appreciation for God. God is so ordered and so complex and everything else. And there's a great documentary. And that's not a Christian documentary, but it's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can, you can find it, um, called, uh, particle fever. And it's, the, it's the, it's this documentary about, uh, the CERN Institute is in, I believe it's in Switzerland or somewhere over there close to Switzerland. Um, it's this big scientific community called CERN, C E R N. And, uh, and they have uh, spent years and years and years trying to 
find what they call the God particle or the Higgs boson uh, uh, particle. And so the, this this whole Higgs, if you ever watch uh, Big Bang and, uh, theory, then you, you've heard of the Higgs boson. So, uh, but anyway, this whole this whole thing, this whole documentary is they finally conducted the experiment where they smashed atoms together and they found evidence of this Higgs boson or what they called the God particle that had let them kind of let them into an idea of the origins of the universe, how the Big Bang might have happened and that sort of thing. And I was watching that, uh, and, I, I, and again, not a Christian documentary. In fact, a, a lot of the people interviewed in that documentary, very anti-faith, right? They're science, all science, that sort of thing. But as I watched it and I watched their, their conclusions and the evidence that they found, I honestly began to tear up a little bit because in what they found, I saw God. I saw God's beautiful created order, and it was just awesome to me. It, where, where some people might set out to, like, like where I think the scientific community has to be careful is knowledge of this world that we live in does not make God smaller or less significant. If anything, it makes him bigger and more significant. And that's where I think we can partner with and, and feel a, a, kin, a kinship with the scientific community where as they're discovering how this world works, it helps us understand the God who created it all. The God who created it all. I just want to challenge your thinking in that a little bit. So before we leave today, let, let me, let me, let's, did, let's dive into Genesis. If, if there's a possibility that the Genesis account is not necessarily trying to lay out a six-day, seven-day uh, you know, time frame, then what, is the, what can we say definitely is the intent of, of you know, kind of unarguable uh, intent of this passage? So turn over to Genesis chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 1. Page 1. So... Um, this is what this is what I want to. I'm going to lay out a couple of ideas for you today. That I think the Genesis account, the, the creation account in Genesis, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's trying to lay out three ideas to the people, to us, and to the people who originally read it. And it's the, these things right here: that God is strong, that God is good, and God is here. God is strong, God is good, and God is here. Genesis one one says this: in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And the, the Hebrew word for created there is this word bara. Everybody say bara. Bara. It's a great word. It's fun. It's, it sounds a little Klingon. Uh, Hebrew sounds a little Klingon to me, actually. And so, uh, it, but bara, it's this word created. And, and so it's not the typical word for, like, if I created, you know, a chair or something like that. It's not the word. This word bara, it, it's used about 50 times in the Old Testament. It's only ever used in reference to God and his ability to create. Humans never bara. Humans never, ever bara. Only God Bara. Uh, okay, so I don't know how, I don't know what the possessive of bara would be. I don't know. So uh, anyway, so yeah, only God bara, and so uh, it is. It is it, it, the the intent of this opening statement, this kind of epic opening statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is to let people know again. One of the things that they, they said in the video was that they are. The, 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 actually, I don't know if you know this. If you if you if you've taken courses on this, maybe you do that. Um, that there are creation accounts from other other faiths that predate our creation accounts. Now that that doesn't mean that they win. That just means that there were people 
writing things down, telling stories, making sense of the world, maybe before the, uh, the Judeo-Christian community was writing things down, making sense of it. And so, like the guy said, a lot of this was written in response to some of the narratives that were already going on out there about the origins of the universe. And, and this idea that in, most, in almost all other faiths, there was no such thing as a good god. The gods were angry. They were warring with each other. They were battling fierce sea beasts and all kinds of weird, wild stuff. And, 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 and humans were just kind of these peons stuck in the mix of everything that was going on, hoping not to get wiped out or that they were, you know, their job was to, you know, do crops and things so they could feed the gods or, you know, make sacrifices to the gods. It was all, it was all about the humans cowering in fear, cowering in fear because these gods that are just chaotic and out of control, who knows how they're going to rain down, you know, their godship on the human population, right? And so the, where, where the Judeo-Christian story gets, gets really innovative is that this, with this idea that there's one God and he created all of this. He is all powerful. He's powerful than your other narratives. He's powerful than the other thing, more powerful than the other things that are going on in your life. God is powerful. He is strong. Then God is also good. If we keep reading that story, in the beginning, God created Barah, the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Okay? So not only is God strong, but now here we learn that God is good. Those two Hebrew words, therefore, without form and void are tohu and bohu. It's just fun to say. Say it. Tohu and bohu. Say it. Yeah, it's good. You'll enjoy that. So uh, tohu and bohu. And, and, and the idea of without form and void is really this idea of, of the world was it didn't make sense. It didn't work. It wasn't, things weren't firing on all cylinders yet. It was in the beginning stages. It was still chaotic. And where those other faiths were looking in at their creation stories going, there's just all this chaos. And how do we make sense of the chaos? Suddenly there's a God who appears on the scene and he takes the chaos and he orders it. He orders it. And not only that, as he orders it, he doesn't order it so much uh, only for himself, he orders it out of love for us. And so he, he gives us seasons and he gives us seed bearing plants and he gives us animals in which we can clothe ourselves and eat and all kinds of other stuff. And he gives us all these good things in creation and he blesses us with those. We're not just something insignificant, something in the way of a bunch of angry gods that God created all of this for his glory and with his creation, us in mind as a good and loving thing that God is strong, but God is also, also good. Also good. Skip over to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter 2 says this, Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the climax of the whole story. 
A lot of times we see the climax as the creation of man, but this is the climax. This is where this whole creation account comes and just rumbles and rumbles and rumbles up to this point. And a lot of times, if you're like me, you've read that creation account and where God rests on the seventh day, creates it all in six days, rests on the seventh day, and you go, you know, he's God. Why does he need rest, right? Um, you know, God doesn't get tired, does he? What's up with that? And, and the idea here, I think the picture actually that it's trying to paint is not so much about a God who's tired uh, from his you know, creative work and needed to rest, but it's a picture of a king, of a king who has done something very good, and he looks out over his kingdom that he has created, and he rests enthroned on high. And God rests, and God reigns so that we can rest in him, so that we can rest in him. So God is strong, and God is good, but the seventh day tells us that God is here. He's in control. He's present in our lives. He's here. That word bara, where God creating something, it's used in another passage of scripture in, in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, it says this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me bara. A clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The same powerful, strong God that could create this entire universe and put one little planet in just the perfect distance from its sun so that life could survive. The same God, good and, and beautiful and powerful, strong God that did that also has the power and the strength and the goodness and the presence in your life to do just as miraculous a creative thing by creating in you something that you don't have. Purity. Purity. I wish I was, I don't know about you. I wish I was a more pure person. I wish, I wish I, my mind was more pure. I got stuck in traffic last night for way, way too long, way too long. And I can tell you my thoughts were not pure <laughs> at all. Like it's a good thing. I did not have a gun with me because it would have gone bad for your pastor today. So I, my thoughts were not pure, but I had a carload of kids. And so I had to white knuckle the steering wheel and just keep my mouth shut. Right. And so I wish though, that some of those evil thoughts and some of those evil designs that come up in my mind and, and the evil choices that I make, I wish that wasn't part of my reality. I wish that I was more pure. And this is what God who is strong, who is good, who is here. He has the power right now in your life to take the worst parts of your life and create something beautiful, beautiful. You'll just allow him to be your strong God, your good God, your, your God who is here. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning, but to me, one of the things that this Genesis account does for us is it lets us know that whatever you're going through, God is capable of handling whatever it is. He's capable. Not only capable, but he desires to make your life better. He desires to rescue you. He desires to lift you up out of whatever pit you're in and place you on some solid ground where you feel some security. 
We're in a, in a world where every creation account was telling their people, be afraid of the gods. God's overwhelming message, message all the way throughout Scripture, over and over and over, is fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm here. I'm strong. I'm good. And I'm here. I've got four kids, and at each one of their lives at different points, they've been scared to, you know, go to sleep, scared of the dark or whatever else. And, and my message to them as their father has been a very similar, your daddy is big enough to whoop anything that comes in this room. Your daddy loves you and would never let anything happen to you. Your daddy is right outside this door, and all you got to do is scream, and I'm on my way. I'm here. And the same thing is true that God is saying to you this morning. I am strong enough for whatever you're going through. I'm good enough that I want to see you come out of this. And I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I think that is the most literal reading of this text. Now, we can, we can debate back and forth time frames and all kinds of stuff. But again, we're not going to die on that hill. Have your opinions. Disagree with, with, with opinions that I've offered, even though I haven't really offered an opinion. I've just offered, offered options to you. Go ahead. Disagree. It's fine. But guess what? I still love you. Because you know what? God is strong enough to help us overcome our differences. He's good enough that we can focus on him instead of our differences. And he's here, so you better just get over it, right? Right. Can you just say, can we just close by saying that together? Say it with me. God is strong. Say that. Say it like you mean it. God is strong. God is good. God is here. He is. He absolutely is. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much and we thank you for your word to us. And God, as we uh, read your word uh, thousands of years, uh, many times after it was written, um, help us to make sense of what it is that you wrote. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us to true meanings. And where we uh, are left in a bit of confusion, God, I pray that your presence would just sustain us through any of that and that we would not hold differences against each other, that we would not define ourselves by our differences, but rather, God, we would define ourselves just simply as your children. We thank you that you are strong, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that we are here. And every single one of us in this room needs your strength. We need your goodness and we need your presence for something that's going on in our life right now. And so I just lift up a prayer on behalf of all of us and just say, be here for us. We need you. We need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.